This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We're in the middle, as you know, of a coronavirus, self-isolation, the economy kind of shut down, and the world's kind of strange for everybody right now. I know President Trump is trying to open back up the economy and loosen up a little bit on the social isolation, but if you've spent any time studying it and reading about it, you'll discover that this is not over by any stretch of the imagination, that they're talking about it could be as soon or as late as June or July before everything semi gets back to normal. And then we're expecting another spike in the fall and then again one in January, February of 2021 before they even can come up with a vaccine. So life for us in the foreseeable future is going to be pretty much like it is right now. And I was asking the Lord to give me some sort of parallel to to help me kind of understand what we're going through versus what they went through in biblical times. And he directed me to the book of Joel. And he did this through our Tuesday night Bible study. As you know, we've been talking about repentance, and I shared yesterday repentance from the book of Joel. And as I've been studying Joel this week, I'm I'm shocked and amazed of the parallels between the calamity that was going on in Joel's time and the words God gave him to speak to his people and what we're facing today. And they're almost identical. So as we as we look at the first two chapters of Joel today, just kind of doing an overview, but focusing on the repentance part, I, I want you to try to think of the locust invasion that they've never had before to this magnitude as the coronavirus and all the collateral damage that's happening to us today, the erosion of civil rights, the the division in our country. And it's just, it's unparalleled times for us. The book of Joel, of course, was written, I don't know, in, in 800 BC. Um, it's the first book in the Old Testament that talked about the day of the Lord. And from Joel on, they just kept referring to it as the day. The phrase the day of the Lord is found over 50 times in the scripture, five times in the book of Joel. And every time it's mentioned, it talks about gloom and doom and, and darkness and, you know, the, uh, the moon falling. And just like the parallels we have in the book of Revelation, Joel means his name means Jehovah is God. And it's kind of the reverse of the name of Elijah, which means God is Jehovah. And, um, When you begin looking at the book of Joel, you'll find that there are two major points that he wants to bring out, the same major points that we need today. And the first point is the fact that God is in control of everything. He is in control of world orders. He is controlled of catastrophes. He he was in control of their locust invasion. He's in control of the coronavirus. He's in control of governments. He's in control of everything. And so Joel wants to make that point clear to the tribes of, um, or to Israel and Judah at this time. The second major point that Joel wants to make that we're going to emphasize today is that God responds to repentance. Repentance. 
He's in total control and sometimes brings calamity to a nation and a people to bring them back to himself. But he also responds to repentance, repentance back then and repentance today. He responds to personal repentance. He responds to national repentance. And so that's the the point that we want to make today, that we have an opportunity to repent and hopefully have God shine his favor on our nation and in our lives and, and on the church today. Um, in the Old Testament, there was always this emphasis on national repentance. And in the New Testament, it was more like an emphasis on personal repentance. And the reason why is in the Old Testament, the Jews were still all under the covenant of God. And so the repentance that took place wasn't a repentance leading unto salvation since they were in a covenant relationship with him. The repentance was more of a forsaking your sin to move back into fellowship with God so that God would would stop chastising the nation and they would be able to experience the blessings of God. And uh, one thing that you'll notice as we go through Joel is that the calamity that's taking place here all originated with God. In other words, he's the one that brought the locust. He's the one that allowed this to happen. He's the one that is, is chastising his people in order to bring them back into a loving, obedient relationship with him. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, in the last segment of that, here's what he says. He says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. And he describes those as my great army, which I sent against you, which I sent against you. Remember, God is in control of world events, and God responds to repentance. Let's look at Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse number 1. If you'll open your Bibles and follow with me, we're just going to kind of do a general overview of this. And I think uh, you're going to be amazed at the parallels between Joel's time and the times we're facing right now. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Amazing phrase here, because if you'll break that down in the Hebrew, what it literally says is this. The word of Jehovah took possession of Joel. It's an amazing picture of inspiration, which I don't want to run down a rabbit trail on that right now. But the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, or the word of Jehovah that took possession of Joel. And verse two, he begins to describe the situations in which they're living. And Joel is shocked. He, he, he's overwhelmed. He can't even imagine that he would ever live to see something like this, much like many people feel today with this worldwide pandemic and this coronavirus. I mean, I'm 65 years old. I'm a baby boomer. Pretty much I've known nothing but prosperity. We've had some wars and we've had some downtimes in our nations, our nation economically, but we've never gone through a Great Depression. I was too young to have experienced World War II. And all of a sudden there's this event that takes place which shuts down our nation, where churches can't meet anymore. Families can't get together in in large groups. Stores are, are going out of business. The government is having to, to fund people, just direct cash infusions into checking accounts just to keep them 
floating or keep them alive financially, it's, it's unheard of today. And nobody even knows the ramifications of what's going to happen or the collateral damage. And Joel is looking at this locust invasion and is basically saying the same thing. Look at verses 2 and verse 3. He says, hear this, you elders. And again, here he's not talking about an elder in an ecclesiastical position like an elder in a church. He's talking about basically old men. He says, hear this, you elders or old men, give ears all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? And if not in your days, or even in the days of your father, can you even remember back them telling you stories about something this bad happening to our nation? It says, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. This is this admonition we find from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse um, and chapter 6, where the idea was the fact that we want to tell our children's children's children about the mercy of God, but also the fact that he judges sin. Joel is overwhelmed with the situation that's happening right now, and then he begins to describe these locusts. Verse number four said, and these are like four different swarms of locusts that have come through and devoured the land. He says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So we live in America. We live in the year 2020, and locust invasions always take place in Africa somewhere, or, or they've, they've never been here in the United States. And, and we've had our blight, and we've had our problems, but, but that's something that's totally foreign to us. So I began to do a little research on these locusts, and locusts can grow as large as 10 inches, if you can imagine. When they swarm, they eat the plant, and at night you can hear them chewing because they also eat the root. So there's nothing left in a field when they're finished. They travel in like military ranks. They're very organized. They, they make this wind-like sound, this buzzing sound that's almost overwhelming whenever they're on the move. And in 1889, there was a, a swarm of locusts that was documented around the Red Sea that covered 2,000 square miles. And they estimated that there were at least 120 million locusts per square mile. So I want you to imagine what that is like. As far as you can see, it's nothing but locusts and the sound of them eating and the buzzing and they're destroying everything. They're destroying your homes. They're destroying your, all the crops. It's, it's causing um, loss of income is causing starvation, disease, inflation, social decay. Everything is going on because these locusts have come and nobody know, nobody knew they were coming. Nobody know, knows how to get rid of them. They don't know how long they're going to stay. It's just like the event that we're experiencing right now. In Christmas time, nobody even thought about the coronavirus. At Christmas time, we were just doing what we normally do. We had the the uh, New Year celebration, and we're looking at 2020 and what a wonderful year it is, and the stock market is soaring, and people's lives are just rocking on. And, and we didn't have the first case in the United States of the coronavirus until the end of January. And now that's all we talk about. Now that that's that's 
all that's on everybody's mind is what's going to happen tomorrow and how are we going to come up with a vaccine and, and it's devastating our economy and there's 30 million people out of work right now and how does a, how does a country recover from something like this? And, and then there's these rumors about China now, you know, testing underground nuclear weapons against the nuclear weapons ban and, and our government is, is being assaulted with cyber crimes and stuff of that nature. I mean, what's going going on here. It's like life changed all of a sudden when these locusts kept swarming in and no one has ever seen anything like this. Verse number five. Verse number five, Joel talks to the drunkards. He talks to the people who don't even care. He's talking to people that are so consumed with Hollywood and so consumed with, with entertainment that all they care about is, is just somehow feeling good themselves. When we, um, when we get to verse number nine, he's talking to the priest. He's talking to those people who minister to the Lord. It's like the pendulum swings from the drunkards all the way to the, to the, the priest over here and then settles down into the middle by the time we get to verse number 11 because he's talking to the farmers. He's talking to the, the entrepreneurs. He's talking to the people who work hard to be able to feed the nation. He's covering all the gambits here and everything, every, word that he says to them is wail and weep and lament because of this. Verse number five, he says, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. And the idea is the fact that, that the first thing the locusts hit would be the grapes and the grapevines. And so they're entertainment is dried up, their ability to go to concerts and go to movies, their ability to do the things that they want to do are now gone. And the word weep mean and wail, weep means an uncontrollable weeping and wailing means literally to howl, to, to just be overwhelmed with anguish. Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. Why? Because the new wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land. Now, the my is capitalized. This is the Lord speaking here. And he's, when he's talking about a nation, he's not talking about a physical nation. He's talking about this nation of locusts. There's this almost like a, an army that's coming after us. For a nation has come up against my land, against, against God's people. Strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. Now, again, he's describing these locusts, but when you read that phrase, if you remember the book of Revelation, it should trigger something in the back of your mind. Wait, 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 wait. A, a locust having teeth like the teeth of a lion. Where did I read that before? And you go back to Revelation chapter 9, verse number 8, and you find when this fifth trumpet is blown that these demonic locusts come out of the bottomless pits. And one of the descriptions of these locusts are the fact that they had teeth like teeth of a lion. Coincidence? I think not. He has laid waste of my vine symbolic of Israel, and ruined my fig tree. Of course, that's the phrase the Lord uses for Judah. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. It just describes the total devastation of what's happens to God's land when these locusts come in that we find out that God originated that, that God sent them, God allowed it to happen to humble his people and bring them back into a, a fellowship relationship with him. 
Verse number eight, we're introduced into a new word of mourning, and that word is lament. And lament is like a combination word. And lament means to weep and to wail and to howl. Instead of breaking it up in three separate segments, it's like you combine all those together. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. That phrase means that it's like a woman in her first year of marriage whose husband has died. And all her hopes and all her aspirations and all her love and everything that she looked forward to is now gone. And she's wailing and weeping and howling and lamenting like that. And and that's how the Jews should be lamenting over the crisis they're going through. God, what is happening here? God, what are you doing to us? God, how can we stay your hand? Lament like a virgin, this is verse 8, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest, because of that, mourn. Here's a Here's another word. Again, it's a, it's a combination word. It means lamenting. It means something of a deep, guttural, emotional reaction. We've dealt with the drunkards, and now we're dealing with the priest, and they're the mourn priest, the priest who mourn, who minister to the Lord. And then, then Joel gives us this picture of how utterly devastated the land is. And he talks about it from the farmer's perspective. And again, you have to realize this was an agrarian society. We're a service-oriented society. And so if, you know, we're not a, we're not a manufacturing society, China would be that, but we're a service-oriented society. So as an agrarian society, if the lands are destroyed, if there's no crops out there, it means that everything that we do and everything that we are has totally been devastated by this swarm of locusts, by this crisis that's come through. And here's how he describes him. The field is wasted. The land mourns. For the, gr- for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. For us today, our shops are closed. The, the banking system is, going, is, is collapsing. The, the stock market is, is unstable. There's no way to, to make any money. Nobody's buying our products. Our credit cards are maxed out. We don't have any cash. We have mortgage payments and debt that we're paying. We're, we're overwhelmed with that. What do we do? Verse 11, be ashamed, you farmers, ashamed of all the hard work you've done that has turned to nothing. And look how it's described. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. All the work that we do, all the products that we produce, everything that we've devoted our life to just for sustenance has now been taken away from us and destroyed by this curse that's come in the shape of these locusts. What do we do? Verse number 13, it says, gird yourself and lament. Gird yourself means to prepare yourself, like to prepare for war, prepare for what's happening. Gird yourself and lament, you priest. It goes back now to the to the the core of the problem. The problem wasn't the fact that Israel and Judah were spending their money unwisely. It was the fact that their hearts had been separated from the God that they were to follow to gods of their own making, to to wealth and pleasure and, and 
maybe like a narcissistic hedonism or something of that nature. And so he focuses back on the priest. The way to turn this around is for Israel and Judah and us as a nation and as a church to get back to the roots of our God. Gird yourself and lament, verse 13, you priest, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, this is the extent of that, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So what do we do? I mean, what is our nation supposed to do facing times like this? What did the nation do in Joel's time? They did something that I've never seen happen in my life before. All the religious people, all the people that knew God and had a covenant relationship with him, all those who called God Father, did away with the things that separated themselves, denominations or or doctrines that divide or stuff of that nature. Instead, they decided to set all the minor issues aside and focus on national repentance. And twice in the book of Joel, you'll find them doing something that we need to do today as a nation, or more importantly, to start as an individual, you and me. It says in verse number 14, consecrate a fast. We're going to set everything aside. We're going to stop what we're doing right now, and we're going to do nothing but focus on God. We're going to consecrate a fast one day, three days, 21 days, 40 days, it doesn't say. A national fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord and cry out to God. In the middle of chapter one, Joel is revealing to us that the way out of this is for those people who know God, not not the lost people, not our government officials, not those in leadership who have no clue what God is like, but for me and you and his church, those people who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, to set everything aside and focus on just getting him to to hear our cries, to dedicate our lives to him, to consecrate a fast, to call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and for us to cry out to him. We find the same thing in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15 it says, blow the trumpet in Zion. And that, when you blow the trumpet, the shofar, it's like uh, alerting people that there's a battle coming or something cataclysmic is coming or we want to rally the people together. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a, this, a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Watch this one now. Sanctify the congregation. In other words, make sure that the people that are coming together have confessed their sins. They're living in a right relationship with him. They've gone through true biblical repentance that we've talked about all week long in these uh, daily audios that I'm sending out to you. Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. This is for everyone. And it's, it's so important. There's There's such an urgency that it says, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. In other words, even something as 
intimate as a couple on their honeymoon, you cut that off because we have something far greater we need to do to gather together as a nation and repent or as a people and repent in the middle of this incredible crisis. That's what Job is telling them to do 2,800 years ago when they faced something like we're facing today. Back to chapter 1, verse 14. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now I want you to, I want you to notice from verse 15 to verse 20, the last part of chapter 1, uh, Joel is giving a description of their situation. Lord, this is what we're going through. This is how bad it is. This is, this is, this is why we're crying out to you. And again, this is an agrarian society. They lived a little different than we do back then. But I want you just as I read this, I want you to get a feel for how they're struggling and what their, what their situation is really all, uh, really like. It says, for last the day, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is at hand. First time that's mentioned. It's mentioned five times in the, um, in the book of Joel. And every time it's mentioned, it talks about trembling and destruction. Uh, let me just show you this really quick. This is Joel chapter 1, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. When the day of the Lord comes, and again, there's so much imagery about the day of the Lord coming in the future, but it talks about a day of destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of land land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. And here's how it's described. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountain. The people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen. And there will never be any of those again, even for many successive generations. In, um, in chapter 2, verse number 11, it says, For the Lord gives voice before his army. For his camp is very strong. For strong is the one who executes his words. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Sounds just like the book of Revelation, does it not? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Do you remember reading that? And thus it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That that verse is quoted in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And then, of course, we've got chapter 3. It says, verse 14, it says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision to choose what side that you're going to be on, God's or the world's. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And here's how it's described. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And it continues. When Joel is describing the situation they're in, he begins to tell them that this is like the day of the Lord. But the imagery here is, as, is Joel saying, as bad as it is for us today and as bad as it is for us as a nation and possibly could be in the future, the day of the Lord is infinitely worse. Verse 15 
Again, Joel's description. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivel under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down for the grain is withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, but that cry is meaningless because it's not backed with a changed life. The fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you for the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the open pastures. Lord, this is what we're facing. Help us. From their agrarian society. So what are we facing today? What is our situation like when we face abortion on demand? 3,000 innocent children are murdered every single day in our nation. As a matter of fact, part of the vaccine that they're putting together to somehow inoculate us from the coronavirus is made up of fetal tissue parts. If there's an industry out there that is involved with the slaughter of innocent children. And we've, we've been involved in that since it became legal in 1973. We have sexual sin in our nation, unknown anywhere except maybe during the Roman Empire. The fact is that we are the largest exporter of porn in the world right now. Homosexuality has become something that now has a civil right. We have the rejection of authority. The social media has turned millions of people into social justice activists, rejecting whatever authority they want to. We have corruption in every one of our institutions, including the church. In fact, most of the church today, our big segment of the church today is apostate. We have the destruction of our families, even in the Christian church. The divorce rate among Christian believers is as high or if not higher than a divorce rate for those who don't know Christ. The last thing we have to worry about is the coronavirus. We are inundated with our situation being absolutely dire, but we have been lulled to sleep by just living in our little huddles and our, our church communities and pretending like that everything out there doesn't affect us in here, but it does. And it's come on our doorstep. And so as Joel was describing his situation, we're in the same situation that they were in, except the calamity is a little bit different. And in my opinion, much more dire. Let me go ahead and, and just read uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 2 to you. And what he's doing here is he's describing the locust. He's describing how sinister this, this curse is coming on his people. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. A day of darkness and gloominess a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountain, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, again, talking about these locusts, nor will there ever be such after then, even after many successive generations. The, the crisis that Joel's people are facing in that time is worse than it has ever been, and it's worse than it will ever be in successive generations. 
And then he starts talking about this scorched earth policy that these locusts had. It says, a fire devours them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. They come upon the Garden of Eden, they absolutely destroy it and leave behind them nothing. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance, now here we go again, for those of you who spend any time in the book of Revelation, it says their appearance is like the appearance of horses, And like swift steeds, so they run. This is a description of the the locusts that come out of the the um, the abyss in Revelation chapter nine, verse seven. Take a look at it yourself. And with a noise like chariots over the mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stumble, like the strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain because there's, there's no letting up. We don't know where they came from. We don't know how long it's going to stay. And we're powerless to make these locusts leave, just like it is with what we're facing today. Not necessarily the coronavirus, but the collateral damage that's going to come on all our lives. And even in the church, even, even the violation of civil rights and some of the things that are going on right now that... Anyway... Another subject for another day. Before them, the people writhe in pain. And this is a description of them. Their faces are drained of color. They run like military men. They climb the walls like men of war. For everyone marches in formation and they do not break rank. Nor do they push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. Everything that, that the people are doing, trying to destroy them, doesn't work. They run to and fro in the city. They run into the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. When you're looking up at the heavens at night, all you see are clouds of locusts. They're overwhelmed by this catastrophe. So what do they do? What's the possible solution for them and is a lesson for us today? Verse 11, God God appears and God speaks. And when they see that, that beyond their problems, beyond the swarms of locusts, that God still is on the throne, it should change their heart. And it does in Joel's time and hopefully for us today to reach out to the only one that can correct this. For the Lord gives voice before his army, and his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his words. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The answer, of course, is no one. We're absolutely helpless. We're absolutely lost. God, you've allowed this coronavirus to be unleashed on the entire world. And, and it, it can, it's consuming our life right now. Every time we turn on television, the news is talking about it. Nations that, like Japan this last week, that had only issued quarantines for the various hotspots has now expanded, and they're issuing stay-at-home orders and lockdown orders for their entire nation. It's not going away. What do we do? What do we do? 
we can't expect our nation who doesn't know God to do the right thing. Instead, it's our job of those who do know God to be able to lead in this battle, to be able to, to bring forth the, the, the only remedy for what's happening right now. And that is repentance and faith in God. And that's exactly what happens in Joel, beginning in chapter 2, verse number 12. Let me just read this. There's almost like a God now has decided that, that we've described the situation. Now I want you to know truth number one, I'm in charge of everything. Truth number two is he responds to repentance. Verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me. Literally, it means to return, go back, or change. Turn to me with all your heart. Haphazardness, just adding me on to to your life, just treating me like you're just giving me a tip or something of that nature, doesn't apply. In other words, if you're overwhelmed with this calamity, if I have gotten your attention with how powerful I am and how sovereign I am and how out of control and in no control you are, then return to me who is in total control with everything that you have, with all your heart. And that heart word means, of course, more than just your mind. It means your mind, your total inward person, your emotion, your will, your volition, your choices, your passions, everything. Put me first above money, above entertainment, above your own pride, above selfishness. Put me first. Turn to me with all your heart. How? How do we go about doing that? Well, first of all, why don't you just set aside some time just for me with fasting and weeping and with mourning? It's more than just saying a 10-minute prayer in the morning. Lord, I commit my life to you. Thank you very much. Uh, Bless me in everything I do today. And then rock on trying to make a buck. The idea is the fact that, no, I'm setting aside some hours, some days, a week maybe longer, where I just want to focus on the totality of our sin and be broken by our sin and wail and mourn and weep because of our sin and fast for, to you to, to, single, to, to singly align my focus on just you. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. It says, rent your heart and not your garments. In other words, don't just come to church and moan and wail, but have no change of nature says, don't, don't just rent your garment so other people can see how anguished you are, but instead make sure it takes place inwardly. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Return to him. If you're like me, I'm very hard on myself. I'm, 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 I have a, sometimes I feel like I have a higher standard of righteousness for my own behavior than God does because he forgives things that it takes me longer to forgive myself for. And so the question I would have here is, will you allow me to return? Will you restore? Will you receive me? Will you re- accept me? And again, that's just my flesh talking. But Joel anticipated that. And here's what he says. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Return to the Lord your God. Will he receive us? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. 
So, so, so if, if I return to God, then if I pray like for 10 minutes every day for like four days, then God's going to have to bless me, right? Well, no, Joel, Joel doesn't even presume what God's going to do. Because what he says in verse 14 is this. He says, who knows if he will turn and relent? And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? But based on his character and based on his nature and based on the fact that he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and great in kindness, that I believe he will. That's what we need to do. And again, before we do it as a nation... The church has to do it. And before the church can do it, which is simply a body made up of individual members, you have to do it. And I have to do it in our own lives and with our own families. So therefore, he commands us in verse number 15 to again, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation and come together and ask repentance from the Lord and ask repentance from him. I'm going to go ahead and draw this to a close, but I want you to know the latter part of or the rest of chapter two talks about how God restores his land. It talks about the fact that the people will cry out to him. The people will humble themselves. And when they do humble themselves, he is excited about restoring unto them what has been destroyed. As a matter of fact, there's some phrases about the former and latter rain that, that we've heard, but don't really know what they come from. And there's another phrase here in verse 25 that says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Remember that? We kind of quote that to talk about how God's going to restore things to us once we return our life to him. But he's talking about the years the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army, which I shall send upon you. I mean, this devastation took years to correct, but God says that he'll restore all of that once we return to him. Verse 27, then you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord, your God. There is no other and my people shall never be put to shame. God is talking about his people, Israel, but the application applies to you and I as the church. So how does that play out? How does that, um, how does that, how does that actually look today? Now, here is one of the coolest things about the book of Joel. After God has revealed to us their situation and the remedy for their situation of repentance, and then up to verse 27 of chapter 2, where he talks about the fact that he will restore everything, then he gives us a glimpse of some, one of the, some of those blessings are like. And I want to just read to you the next two verses, and you tell me if you recognize them. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. That's how Peter began his sermon in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit had come upon the 120 and he got up and preached this sermon which inaugurated the church age and he began to explain to them what was happening was fulfilled in Joel chapter 2. That this 
latter day, this blessing that is happening was being manifested to them in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit coming upon them, just like the Holy Spirit came upon us. I won't, I won't go any further in this today for the sake of time, but I want you to know that the answer, the antidote to what we're going through right now is not some vaccine made of aborted fetal tissue that's going to keep us from catching some virus that a new virus can come next year or the virus can mutate into something else. That's not how we find satisfaction in life. The antidote for what's happening in our culture right now, long before the coronavirus came, is repentance in the name of Christ and an allegiance to him. It's living for his kingdom. It's it's repenting, not just in words only by renting my clothes as some outward sign of repentance, but a repentance of my heart where I am anguishing and lamenting over my sin, how I have made choices that have defiled in my own life a, a holy God and severed a, a fellowship relationship with the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And the way to resolve that is to simply Ask the Holy Spirit, and I know I've shared this with you a dozen times or more. Lord, what have I done in my life to grieve you? Show me exactly what it is. And whatever it is, no matter how costly or how painful it is or how important it may seem to me, show me what it is so I can repent of it and have you cleanse me from all unrighteousness and restore that fellowship relationship with me and not grieve you any longer. In order for our nation to turn around, the church has to turn around. And in order for the church to turn around, the individual churches, the individual dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, you and I, who congregate together in what our culture calls a church, you and I have got to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that begins with heartfelt repentance and an allegiance to him and a commitment to serve him and his kingdom only. It is my prayer. It is my prayer that this coronavirus crisis, although it hasn't really affected us where we are right now, it's devastating families in New York, for example, but this coronavirus situation we're facing right now will be a wake-up call for you and for me to put him first in everything and live for his kingdom and not for anything else that matters. Amen. Let me pray for us. 